My wife Rachel got me a book for Christmas this year. Um, it was called, uh, it's called When Books Went to War, The Stories That Helped Us Win World War II. And it's an interesting, a fascinating um, concept, a, a thesis, that the idea is that, that the war of World War II was really as much of a war of, of guns and bombs, it was a war of ideas. You see, in 1933, um, uh, the Nazis had a large rally where they, the first time where they publicly burned hundreds and thousands of books. And university students poured out with books, armloads of books, and, and threw them on a, on a bonfire. And they celebrated not the destruction of these, uh, these priceless books or whatever, but the, the, they were, the attempt was the destruction of ideas that were, uh, that were contrary to, uh, to the new vision of Germany. Um, so they destroyed uh, certain authors' books. They destroyed any books that had much to do with democracy or freedom or freedom of speech. They destroyed these books because they wanted a people who would fall into line with their agenda. It took a long time, but the West realized what was happening, or, the, or not the West, but West, East, Western Europe and, and uh, further into America. You realized what was happening. Uh, and, and one of the ways that this was combated in America after we entered the war was to, um, was to make sure that the, the soldiers and sailors who were going off to fight had plenty of books. They said this is important that these, uh, these folks, the, you know, all branches of the military and all types of service have these books not only for diversion but to, um, but to, to instill courage in them in times when they were uncertain about what they were fighting for. And so they, uh, the uh, um, libraries uh, did a, a book drive, much like they did scrap metal drives and rubber drives. They did a book drive and, and, and gathered over 10 million books. Uh, but those weren't enough. They needed books that also the men could carry into battle with them, so they needed small and light books. And so uh, the publishers all got together, um, and uh, one publisher said this, The men of words share the responsibility with the makers of guns and the users of them to win the war and a lasting peace. The men of words share this responsibility. And so they took that responsibility and they began, they they determined a certain number of books that they would publish and they they, uh, made a new format. It was paperback, which was very uncommon in those days. And they were very small and transportable. And it was these books that were carried into battle and, uh, and provided the, the fortitude and the courage for these men. And by, by this author's account, really helped us to win World War II. You see, the point, uh, point of that is, and, and, and the point of what Peter is saying today in this chapter, is that knowledge matters. What you know, what you believe at your core affects who you are and how you live. Um, it's a very basic tenet of Christianity, but something uh, that, that Peter wants to make us very sure of in his whole book and in this passage today. In the book of Second Peter, this is a major theme, that we would know this Jesus and his grace. He said, in fact, Peter opens and he closes with that. It's kind of a, an intro and a benediction that you would know him and his grace. And he says ten times throughout these three short chapters, this word about knowledge and understanding comes up. It's a theme with him. He really thinks this is, he seems to think it's quite important for us. And I agree. 
as you may be unsurprised to find out, I agree with Peter. Because, put another way, a lie about God is a lie about life. A lie about God is a lie about life. These false teachers that Peter is talking about, he spends a third of his book just talking about these false teachers and identifying them, but he spends really very little time identifying what they're teaching. Don't you think that may have been helpful? He doesn't, he doesn't think so as much. He spends much more time talking about their character. And he says one little thing, a couple little things about them. But in uh, chapter 3, he says this um, about these false teachers. They will say, where is the promise of his coming, of Jesus' coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So they're denying, these false teachers are denying that Jesus will return. They're saying everything is going to carry on as it is right now. It's going to keep on feeling like this. The things that are broken are going to remain broken. The people who perpetrate evil are going to remain unpunished and scot-free. And there really isn't a king who's going to reign over all things. There's nothing like that. They're denying. So when they deny the return of Jesus, that's what they're denying. It's a seemingly small part of our faith. You could, you could step back and say, well, the return, I don't know, maybe a big deal. But what I do know is that God loves me and that, that I can help people. And that's probably enough, right? Like if you just remove that little part about his return, that's kind of tacked on the end anyways. But Peter's claim is, no, that all of this is, is massively important. Because your understanding affects who you are. So what happens when these false teachers, they, they remove this one small part, this seemingly insignificant part? What happens to them? Well, Peter says, he spends a long time describing them, that they're greedy for gain. They abuse the weak. They give themselves over to sensuality, which in biblical language, that's uh, sex out of bounds. And they're dishonest. How are these two related? I mean, are these just bad people to begin with? And then they just decided that they could, they could teach people these things? I don't think so. I think there's a strong connection between what they understand and who they are. What they know, what they believe, and who they are. You see, if, you, if, you, if we as humans, we are people... Um, of hope. We are people that live by what will happen or what may happen. Some of us more than others. But every person has an understanding, has an idea about where things are headed. Where is this, where is my life headed? Where is the world headed? What's going to happen in the end? And these false teachers have extracted from the the end of the story and they've said there's going to be no final justice. Right? Bad guys are not going to get paid back because that's what Jesus brings. He's going to bring judgment. He's going to set inequity to rights. They said there's there's not going to be a a full public declaration that Jesus reigns as king over all his creation. So there's no ultimate justice. There's there's not going to be a payback. There's no king, really. There's There's no coming king. There's no master or lord, as it says in this passage. 
And finally, things aren't going to be put right. What we see is what there is. What is in front of me is what I have, is, is, is all I can get. That's what they've extracted from the faith. And you see, when humans, when humans don't have something to, to look outside of and, and be in awe about, they will always turn inside. As Martin Luther says, we are, uh, we are in curvitas se. We are curved in towards ourselves. We are self-referential. We think about ourselves. And when, when, when these false teachers extract that big and grand event to look forward to, they curve into themselves and they listen to their inner voice. And what is your inner voice always going to tell you to do? Preserve my life. Make sure I get mine. Make sure I have all the things that I want. You see, if there's nothing ever going to be fixed in this world, then maybe then I should just go ahead and get all I can right now. If there is no master, then I am the master. And if there is no justice, then it doesn't matter who I step on to get there. What you know affects who you are. They've extracted a seemingly small part of the faith, and, it's, and, and they're, they've, uh, they've come undone. But you know, it works the other way too, right? What you know determines who you are. Rachel and I lived in Philadelphia um, when we were pretty young, and I was a youth director there at a church. And we had, <clears throat> we had invited all the students over to our apartment. I think it was the Christmas party. And we had just arrived in October. We were still pretty new, didn't really know much. We invited these kids over for a Christmas party. And who should show up first but Chelsea? Chelsea had moved even more recently than us. Chelsea was an eighth grader. And Chelsea walked into my house wearing her costume that she had created for the musical Cats to a, to a teenager party. She had, like, I mean, beyond, like, all the colors, I think there were, there were ears and whiskers involved. I can't remember. But she did have, like, these hand-knitted like not really gloves. They kind of cut off right here, and they just they didn't, and they went all the way up to her elbow that she had made, and they were multicolored. And she walked in, and I thought, "Oh, you poor girl. Oh no, what can I do? Does Rachel have the same size clothes? We got to do something here. This is gonna be ugly." She's walking in to a group of teenagers dressed like this. But you know, from from middle school, Chelsea knew that she was going to design costumes and be an actress on Broadway. She knew it. That's what she was going to do. She was so dead certain and continued to live that dream for years and years. And I've lost touch with her. Last time I talked to her, not not long ago, she was still doing it. But Chelsea, she knew who she was. She knew who she wanted to be. And she exuded this this confidence that was amazing to me. It was, a, it was one of the most, uh, the times in my life I've been most happy to be wrong. Because the kids, like, uh, especially kind of the outsiders, just kind of were drawn to this, to her confidence and her certainty. You see, she knew who she was, and it affected how she was. She knew who she was, it affected what she did. It works both ways. That's why Peter is so... Um, so big on talking to us about this. Peter says, 
Peter says that he wants us to be sure. Now, here's a pretty surprising part of this passage. He spends an entire passage helping, uh, and, you know, a third of his book, the Second Peter, helping you and me to identify false teachers. Don't you think, I mean, just naturally thinking about it, wouldn't that be the job of the other teachers or elders in the church? Like the other smart dudes who knew a lot and studied a lot and all that. Wouldn't that be their job? But Peter gives it to the, to the congregation. He gives this job, identify the false teachers, beware of them. He gives that job to the whole congregation. I think that is one of the most beautiful things about our faith, about Christianity. And one of the strongest defenses, in my humble opinion, it is a faith for the weak. It is not an elitist system. Anyone Anyone can come. Anyone can be part of this. You don't have to be clever. You don't have to be well-read. You don't have to have attended a great school. You don't have to have a pedigree. Anybody can come. So Peter gives this job to all of us. Identify the false teachers. Look out for them. But how, how can we be certain he seems to just assume that, that certainty is possible, which I think is a not, not a terribly popular opinion in our world right now, that certainty can be achieved about much of anything. Certainly, if, uh, if you count yourself on, on the religiously liberal side, you'll say, no, you can't be certain about this. About this. You can't be certain about much of anything. Every, it's all complicated. There are so many sides to the different sides to these problems. There's so many different ways to look at it. But like, what about the Gospel of Thomas? You know, the church decided not to use that one. Maybe the church is, is all a power play. Maybe they're just trying to, you know, keep their thumb on top of all the people. They don't want us to know there's other ways, there are other secret knowledge out there. That can go about anything. I think today... Certainty is about the most offensive thing you can, uh, you can claim. I had a friend who told me that my claims about Jesus, who he was, what he did, and what he accomplished, was the height of hubris. Angrily, he told me that. Hubris is destructive pride. It's like self You're so prideful that you're completely blind and you will ultimately destroy yourself and anyone near you. That's hubris. That's what he told me because I, was, because I claimed some kind of certainty. It's, it sounds humble. No, you can't be certain about anything. You've got to listen to everything. You've got you to gotta accept everybody, which is to say, don't care about anyone. Right. Here's what this uh, you've heard this before, so I'll make it quick. You cannot claim there is no such thing as certainty, because that in itself is a certainty. Let's think about this one. You're telling me there's no such thing as certainty. How are you so sure? <laughs> what are you standing on? What do you believe? Why do you say that? It doesn't make any sense, right? You can't be certain that there's no such thing as certainties. It doesn't make any sense. But I, frankly, I don't think the religiously uh, conservative is a whole lot better. 
They were certain pretty much about everything. And if I know all the right things, that's what's going to make me a worthwhile person. That's what's going to make me good enough. If I know it all, if I've studied all the right things. And so everything has to be, has to line up and be completely certain. But, but a couple well-aimed questions can make that whole wall crumble. You know why? It's because it's based on the knowledge of man. That I've studied enough. That yeah, there are some of these hard questions in the Bible, but with archaeology and stuff, we'll answer them all. It's based on human understanding and knowledge that I can be certain. And when that human understanding and knowledge crumbles, today's conservative is tomorrow's heretic. Because they just have to leave the faith. If one little bit gets poked out of there, well, probably nothing's right. Oh, my goodness. You know, Leviticus called bats a bird. And we know they're not birds now. So it's all a bunch of garbage. That's a silly example. But it's the type of thing that happens that, that, that when, when we build it on our human understanding and that human understanding is poked out and crumbles, then we have to abandon it all. But that's not what Peter offers us here. He doesn't offer us this falsely humble, there is no certainties, or this, or this uh, you know, pridefully arrogant, I can be certain of all things by my own study and, and, uh, and intelligence. He offers us a third way. Christianity offers us a third way. You see, if we're to, if we're, if we're to believe that we are so weak and rebellious, and sinful, if we're to believe that's true about ourselves like Scripture says it is, then of course we're going to doubt our own ideas. Of course we're going to take a step back every once in a while and say, wait, wait, maybe I don't understand that one all the way. Maybe I don't really get it. Of course we're going to have, we're gonna have to have some of that humility if we believe what Scripture says about us is true. But on the other hand, if we also believe that we, uh, we belong to a God who loved us so much that he not only revealed himself to us, that he rescued us. That he showed himself in these great acts in history that actually happened, and then he interpreted them through his word. Then we have the humility of knowing we're, we're weak and we're finite and we're sinners, but we also have the boldness to know that this almighty God has revealed himself to us. He's revealed certain things to us. So we can hold the boldness and we can hold the humility. So yeah, there are certainties. There are. We can be certain, and Peter goes um, goes a ways to make sure that we know that. He says in verse and in, in chapter one, he talks about our certainty resting in the fact that we have seen this with our own eyes. He says, "Look, I'm an eyewitness. I was there. This stuff happened in time, space, history, and I watched it go down. You can be sure of it." And then he says, "You also have the scriptures that testify to all this stuff that happened." And the scriptures aren't just man-made, he says. They're they're books that were written through men as they were carried along by the Spirit. Yeah, you can be certain. And he gives us one more test, one more method, certainty in this chapter here. He tells us how to be certain that when we're receiving false teaching.
Like I said earlier, he doesn't spend much time talking about what the teachers taught, what these false teachers taught. He spends a lot more time talking about who they are. He says we can identify them by their character. (coughs) Why would we want to focus on identifying false teachers by means of assessing their character? It's because... God knows, and he has designed us this way, that this knowing that shapes our being and doing, that kind of knowing flows out of relationship. It flows out of community. His favorite way to interact with and change his people is when the word and community collide. If you are, if you have a, an experience of your faith in which you you receive a lot of information that you really care a lot about. You read a book about uh, about your faith, about Christianity in some way, and you get really excited about it. Or you hear a great podcast, and you think, man, this is great stuff. I really like this. But then you turn and you look at your life, and you say, excuse me, do we have any water it's okay if we don't. Somebody, it's not your fault, Clara. Oh, man. <laughs> Usually Clara has a little bottle of water for whoever's preaching. I think we're, uh, we don't have them. Courtney drank them all. It's terrible. <laughs> Sorry. My throat is dry, though. But if, you're, um, if you have a faith that is heavy on, on, on this kind of knowledge stuff, but very... But, but you turn and you look at yourself and you say, why don't I have that same passion about my own growth? Why can't I seem to change? Why can't I, I seem to let go of these sins? And maybe because you've divorced community from that knowledge. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. Can we have a round of applause? Claire Thomas, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> And maybe that you don't know your teachers. It may be that you don't know them. It may be that you're submitting yourself to distant teachers whom, whom you can never open their fridge and take out a drink. You can never watch them parent their children or interact with their roommates or with their spouse. Peter is telling us that that we are designed to learn that way. That knowing that that affects our being comes through relationships. It comes through knowing, knowing our teachers. You know, the Lord has has given to this church a number of elders and their wives. And these are these are the brothers and their wives who are who are um who are called to watch over and teach, instruct this congregation. You need to be in their homes. You need to be close to them. These are the people you need to say, I need to, I, I, I don't, you, these are the people that you need to allow to help shape you. Podcasts and books are great. They, that, that's fine. 
But what Peter is driving at here is that you're going to know a true teacher by their life, by who they are, by how they treat people. It's a call to those of us who teach to be known, to allow ourselves to be known, um, to allow people into our lives. You see, Peter is wanting us to be certain of this knowledge. And he says one of the ways you're going to be certain of, the no- of your knowledge is the holiness of your teachers. That means you need to allow yourself to interact with these elders, the ones who are given particular oversight of you. And I, I, I think we would all at Rock Creek include their wives in that. I think scripturally we would too. You need to, you need to interact with them, witness their holiness, and allow that to reassure you. Yes, what I'm receiving from them is true. What I, what I experience of this faith, that's, it's true. Look, God changes people. He shapes them. And if you had known Scott Jones five years ago, you'd have your doubts. <laughs> I didn't know him five years ago, but I've heard stories. Just kidding. <laughs> need to allow this holy, the, the holiness of your elders and their wives to reassure your faith. And like I said, it's a call to the elders to be known. To make sure that people are, know who you are, where you live, how you live. But it's not just, um, it's not just the elders that have a call to holiness or a call to teaching. Because you and I, each of us, are somebody's teacher. Somebody in your life. Somebody in your life, if you belong to Jesus, is looking at you and saying, oh, that's what this Jesus stuff means. That's what Christianity is about. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a co-worker or a neighbor. But so, you are somebody's teacher. And somebody is looking at you and being, and being either assured or, uh, or lacking certainty about this, this stuff that you're teaching through your life and your words. Peter says that false teachers deny the master who bought them. This leads, as we've already said, to all kinds of damaging behavior, to greed, to giving themselves over to the lusts that are out of bounds for God's people, to using other people for their own selfish gain, to dishonesty. Ultimately, it leads to a bad name for Christ and his church. And when you and I give in to the demands of our greed, when we give in to those temptations, we give in to lust, we're not only denying our master when we do that, but we're teaching in those moments. We are teaching others to do the same. Peter spends about half this passage on the character of the teachers and the other half on what God's going to do to them. And it is not pretty. He says that these false teachers, these false teachers have chains and utter darkness reserved for them. 
He says that God knows how to take care of those who are leading his people astray. He took care of it by fire in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he took care of it by water, by flooding the evil earth in Noah's day. The things said of these false teachers could stick to us. They are animals born to be caught and destroyed. Our destruction is not far away. But Peter holds out hope. He holds out hope in our passage. He says that God knows how to deal with these false teachers. But he also knows how to deal with his children. And he preserved Noah. He preserved him. He brought judgment. And that very judgment that he brought the water was what floated that boat up to safety. He rescued Noah through judgment. And did the same to Lot. And he's done the same to you and me because by death, we have been rescued from death. By the death of the true teacher, the one who only ever taught and lived in harmony with God, never said or lived a false thing in his life. He has died so that you and I, who are false teachers, could be rescued. He is our certainty. He is the ultimate certainty. Not that we can count on our own intelligence. Not that we can even believe that these elders, these teachers, that maybe they have secret sins that we don't know about. And maybe that would undermine your... Peter is given a certainty not in our own abilities to decide and deduce, but in the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. That's what gives us certainty. And that's what gives us humility. If you are one of these false teachers who deny the master and give in to temptation, give in to greed and lust, and use people, if you're one of these false teachers who has been delivered from this death and judgment, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then this table is for you. This table that we're coming to. This is a table for the greedy. It's a table for those who lead others astray. It's a table for the weak. It's a table for the doubting. It's a table for the uncertain. If you have, if you have received the certainty of life in Jesus Christ, then this table is for you. This table is for you. Father, we pray that you would um, infuse into us now the certainty that you have bought for us in Jesus Christ. We want to eat and drink and remember today. In Psalm 23,